This is the Meiji at 150 Student Podcast. I'm Sebastian, and today we will be talking about Japanese auto racing. Hi there, Sebastian. Dr. Gruna, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So we're going to be talking about Japanese auto racing. I tried to go out there and find uh, kind of the most obscure, but in my opinion, authentically Japanese sport that I can. And you came across auto racing, so what do you mean by authentically Japanese in this case? In, to this extent, I mean it, auto racing and motocross is something that happens all over the world, but this sport in particular, the rules, the way that the bikes are set up, and, and kind of the culture surrounding it, there it doesn't really happen anywhere else in the world. And the sport is even, they, they even kind of go on tour to other um, East Asian countries. And it's not, uh, from what I could find, it's not racers from these other countries where they go and uh, kind of demonstrate the sport. It's still only Japanese racers everywhere they go, and it's still only by their Japanese rules. So are you an auto racer yourself, or do you have a particular <laughs> interest in auto racing? I'm not an auto racer myself, but I do find it very interesting. Do you watch a lot of auto racing? On YouTube, not a... <laughs> I don't think I've come across a TV channel where they're playing it. Okay, but so you're a fan of auto racing, and that's what interested you in the topic to begin with? Yeah, mostly cars, actually. Okay. Um, kind of when I set out to do this, I knew that there was a big culture of... Uh, like car modification and car modding in Japan in general. So I started um, down this rabbit hole, I guess, looking for auto racing and street racing. Um, and I didn't find too much in the way of kind of legal um, <laughs> setup sure. sports. Okay. And I'll get into the, the questionable legality of this sport in a bit. But, you know, I came across this and was kind of instantly hooked, watched a few videos, read up on it a bit, and something about it was just so, like, different from everything else that's out there. So this is less... Need for Speed, NASCAR style racing, and more Tokyo Drift, illegal street racing? Um, so this in particular, I don't know, I'd say it's a healthy amalgamation of the two. It's, um, it's legal, it has some gray areas, there's some shady business that goes on in and around the sport, and some shady business that actually shut the sport down for a while. And it's not done on streets. It's all done on tracks in uh, stadiums. Okay, so I, now I'm really confused. So it, it is on tracks. So yeah. it is a, an organized sport like IndyCar or yeah. NASCAR. Yeah. Well, maybe I should just say, well, just explain. What, what is it? What is auto Japanese auto racing? The, the sport essentially is, it's just a Japanese take on like regular motorcycle speedways. And what makes it kind of questionable or at least gives it a bit of that gray area is that the racing aspect and the betting aspect the betting isn't an accessory to the racing the two are one and the same and that's why it gets in a bit of a, a bit of a gray area so is there a national association that's in charge of this racing or yes there is it's regulated by the JKA foundation and they kind of started off the sport, and they held the first ever meeting at Funabashi in 1950. Okay. Yeah. And even when the sport started out, and why there was kind of the questionable legality of it, and why to this day there still is a lot of betting and gambling involved, is because the sport was heavily Yakuza-sponsored, and mm-hmm. they kind of dumped a lot of money into it, and there was a lot of race-fixing, and mm-hmm. probably some roughing up of <laughs> competitors in between races, but... So, so describe a, a typical race day for us. I mean, how many how many bikes? You said it's motorcycles mainly. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so how many bikes? How many spectators? I mean, I'm imagining, 
you know, like in the NASCAR where you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of fans show up yeah. in this giant stadium type of situation. Yeah, yeah. So what is happening here in these auto races in Japan? Okay, so it's it, it doesn't really compare to NASCAR, and not to knock on NASCAR, but there isn't that much of a almost religious uh, fanaticization with it. Sure. So it doesn't bring in the hundreds of thousands of spectators, um, but, you know, it's in smaller stadiums. The tracks are a bit smaller. They're not dirt tracks. You know, over here and in a few other countries around the world, you look at motocross, and they're kind of going on the jumps, and it's all right. like a dirt. Here they're asphalt, so mm-hmm. wipeouts are pretty dangerous and pretty severe. Six racers to a race, they do six laps, and multiple races can happen in an event. So it's almost, I guess the only comparison I could draw there maybe is, I don't know, if you were to go to see like monster trucks or something where Mm -hmm. there's different events going on, but you know, you're going to sit down and watch for three hours and see everything unfold. So it's not just one and done, one quick three minute race and then everyone goes home. Yeah. It sounds kind of like an X Games format. Have you ever watched X Games? Yeah, yeah. Motocross stuff. Yeah, I've, I've seen a bit of stuff, so I, I guess you could say it's kind of like that. So what's the general age, what's the general age group of, of the riders? Usually younger people. The minimum age to enter is 16. And then the oldest racer that I found was, I think, 38, 39. Okay. There have been a lot of accidents in the sports, too, so I can definitely see why you know younger people would be... And so you, you mentioned it started in the 1950s with this questionable JKA association that's at one, at one time sponsoring the events, but then also managing and doing all the bookkeeping for the gambling it sounds like yeah yeah so it was they're doing a bit of that but i i guess what i can i can say that it was more of like a laissez-faire kind of turning a blind eye to a lot of the stuff going on so making sure that you know all right we're gonna book the stadiums you know all the racers are registered stuff like that but also understanding that the Yakuza is dumping money into this sport and mm-hmm. this is helping us make money as well. So we're going to turn a blind eye to the race fixing and those kind of things. And where it stopped was when the fans and the spectators got sick of the race fixing because they wanted to either enjoy a good race or make some money. And that's when the JKA shut it down, got the Yakuza out, and then kind of huh. rebooted the Matrix, if you will, and kept it going again. So I get the impression then talking about the Yakuza involvement, I, I get the feeling that it must have been really popular in the 80s and 90s in the bubble period. Is yeah. That, so that was its peak. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually still going very strong today. So it, I would say that the only period it died down was actually in the 60s when all of the, the race fixing and everything came to light. And actually, I can get into a bit of how they they took some measures pretty much when they came back to prevent these kind of things. And one of them is the fact that just like any sport, there's a lot of touring of the sport, right? So they'll move in and around um, Japan and go to different stadiums and things like that. And they have a very busy schedule. So racers actually stay in dormitories altogether, even though they're all competing against each other. Mm-hmm. So they're, they try to do as much as possible to limit any outside interference when they're on the road. And they're also mechanics as well they're their own mechanics they're their own trainers everything so even during like a big race day unlike a nascar here i don't know if motocross has it but unlike nascar there's no pit crews they can't pull over they can't get any help they can't get help between races they can't talk to a coach between races if they have a coach so it's a very lone wolf sport and the sport kind of depends on that a bit there isn't much sponsorship money that comes into the sport even today even though it is mm-hmm. legal i think that might have something to do with the gambling aspect being so heavily intertwined but yeah the sport kind of relies heavily on the idea of like the superstar racer um 
hmm. which is, you know, kind of strange, I guess. Yeah. And, and so you said they also tour to foreign countries, so it's almost as if it's like a a touring troupe of performers. Yeah. Harlem Globetrotters yeah, ask right. Globos, like that right? Kind of thing. Yeah. So, so w- what's the appeal then? Do they put on a particularly exciting race or or what what makes what makes the performative aspect so appealing? Uh I, I don't. I think it would be a, a matter of you know beauty being in the eye of the beholder. So okay. if you enjoy watching motorcycles zip around a track six times very quickly, and admittedly it is pretty exciting. How they do it too is um, they try and raise the stakes and make the races as exciting as possible. Okay. So no flaming hoops or jumps or anything like that because they are moving so fast. But they stagger the starts depending on the slowest racer from the last race all the way up to the fastest racer. So that way races are a bit more even and finishes come down to the wire. Like we're talking, you know, tenths of seconds, that kind of thing. The bikes also don't have brakes. <laughs> so <laughs> there is there is no slowing. Like you, you cannot go into a turn and, uh, you know, in a regular race, brake in the turn and then move your way out of it. No, they, they're just leaning over. And um, not all of the bikes are... Um, if you know, like, like a Kawasaki Ninja type bike where you're leaned over, uh-huh. they're not all like that either. Some of them take on the more, the Harley Davidson look sure. and they have, because you're, uh, on this tilted asphalt track and you're constantly turning, yeah. the handlebars are actually designed differently. Uh-huh. So your, if I'm getting this right, your left handlebar would be very low to the ground and your right handlebar would almost be at shoulder length, even on, on kind of the more, the Kawasaki Ninja type huh motorcycles so they have very strange designs they don't have brakes um they're modded and souped up so these things are essentially rockets on two wheels okay so i'm definitely yeah. starting to see how it's different than say the bmx motocross where yeah you're going over the dirt jumps and things like yeah that. yeah so but you said it's also authentically japanese i mean so other than the fact that it, it is different but what would you say makes it so authentic i i think just the fact that it really lies in that difference. The fact that the sport, obviously you could say that, you know, the the nature of motorcycle racing comes from, you know, an inspiration from somewhere else, but it is so unique to Japan, mm-hmm. especially. there. From what I could tell, there is no other country that has tried to replicate this model. I don't know if that's for safety <laughs> concerns or, uh, or just, um, you know, there isn't a market for it. Uh-huh. But the sport has had such a kind of a, a history of, not only involvement with organizations like the Yakuza, but also part of that post-war cultural awakening, almost. You know, started in 1950, so just five years after the end of the Second World War. And you can almost say that it, it, you know, like many sports coming out of uh, that period, was almost a statement of the new Japan. Yeah, and and you mentioned Kawasaki, but uh, companies like Honda, Kawasaki, uh, Suzuki, uh, all of the other motorcycle manufacturers got their start as really small companies in the post-war period. Yeah. And so it sounds like this sport of, of auto racing kind of grew with the Japanese automobile industry. Yeah. In fact, Honda, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, started as a motorcycle manufacturer and then grew into this giant car company. Yeah, yeah. So what was the most uh, exciting, or what was the most interesting thing that you learned and the thing that you think is the coolest that you would share uh, with your friends, for example? Most, um, aside from the, the technical specifications of the bikes, I would say that um, the extent of the sport, the money coming into the sport, mm-hmm. 
is one, if I can make it a two-parter. So the money coming into the sport and how much money there is floating in and around it, and also kind of the social dynamics of the sport itself. The sport is actually, well, there was a gap, but the sport used to champion the idea of gender equality in the sport as well, which is very interesting, not only for Japan, but for the rest of the world. Um, I have a statistic here that in 1963, they actually had 66 women competing in the sport itself, which, you know, if you were to compare to the vast amount of racers, that really is just a drop in the bucket, but that still is pretty sizable. Were they put into like a special ladies no. category or something? No, like no, that? there so wasn't. There wasn't ladies racing or anything like that. Even more surprising, it was literally if you're good enough to race and you know everything about your bike and you're not sure. going to die going around the track six times, you're in the race. Wow. Okay. However, in 1967, Nane Okamoto she retired, and there was a gap of no female racers. They weren't barred. There just weren't any female racers until. Uh-huh. 2010, um, when Maya Sato and Hiromi Sakai entered. Although, sadly, Sato's first rookie win, the max prize was only 70,000 yen. So I think 875, just below 900. Yeah. USD, I, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, what is the, the winner get? So there is cash prizes. Is... Yeah. Uh, I guess the term you would use for, in, you know, in any racing, the purse, the, the uh-huh. cash prize, they range from 15 million to 35 million yen. So, okay. so that's... Like below 200,000 to 400, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. In and around there. So they're decently sizable. The average racer will make about 14 million yen a year, which isn't too bad. Yeah, that's about 140,000. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to put my life on the line for that every day, but that's <laughs> so, what it so is. So it is every day. That's, a, that's the other Is there a racing season, or does it just constantly around it's it's pretty much a year-round thing i think i think there's a small like a two month one month lull uh-huh. um in and around uh december okay and other so, than that and how many races a week just one once a week no i i think they they kind of have them concurrently at, at multiple stadiums mm-hmm. so i want to say three three to four like in that range races a week so it's constantly going and the, the sport's pretty big too and you know you go all the way from amateur racers you know they enter their first race all the way up to the big name pros and the pros they rake in the real money they make about one billion yen a year so so how did the bike stop <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't give you an exact technical explanation of how uh, like at the end of the race how do you st- you said there's no brakes yeah there's so. no brakes on the bike so at the end of the race they literally just run the you course you, yeah and these things are going top speed right uh-huh. for six laps so they're probably running it out for what another six laps maybe until they can come to a comfortable stop and and stop it with their feet yeah. We'll yeah. have to find a video of this. Yeah, I almost should have brought one here to the show, but no, from the one I saw, they you know, the guy wins the race and he's got his fist up uh-huh. and uh-huh. chanting, and at first I'm wondering, this is before I looked into him, I'm like, oh, he's really riding out this victory laugh, right? Like he's <laughs> he's already gone around the track two times. <laughs> Come on, buddy. Yeah, and then the video ends and then <laughs> I look it up after. <laughs> no breaks, so and they don't have a, an area like a yeah, like yeah. kind of a crash area or anything sure. to go into. So yeah, it's you, you literally just keep going. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.